0: You're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist, where we talk about how Sarah died at the age of 127. Will you be that lucky? Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda.
1: I was really excited for this week, but also a little confused because Hi, Sarah seems like a weird portion to me. Why is that? Well, it says that you know it's about the life of Sarah, but there's a lot that goes on in it that has nothing to do with Sarah.
2: Yeah, that's pretty true. There's a lot that goes on in the story portion and very little of it has to do with Sarah directly.
1: The one thing I was excited about was it shows a really natural way to invite someone into your tribe. And with that, I think we're really lucky to have Rebecca Schwab, co-founder and executive director of Shy Tribe, joining us for this week's episode.
2: I'm excited too. Let's listen in.
1: we're really stoked to welcome you for the third episode of drinking and Drushing tour with a twist as always i'm third year rabbinic student amanda weiss
2: and i'm third year cantorial student gabe snyder
1: welcome to rebecca schwab co-founder and executive director of shy tribe hi and a quick welcome to carly frumkin burak from ilini hillel hi We'll get to visit with Carly a little later. Rebecca Joey Schwab has always secretly aspired to be a jew influencer. Originally from Skokie, Illinois, Rebecca grew up with private Jewish education from K through 12, attending Camp Young Judea Midwest every summer. As a Jewish social media consultant, Rebecca is optimizing millennial and Gen Z connectivity in a changing environment. After 6 years consulting with different Jewish organizations, Rebecca specializes in identifying new markets of disengaged populations and auditing current engagement materials and social media platforms, which she puts to use when co-founding Shy Tribe, where she now works as the executive director.
2: Thank you so much for being here. Uh what is Shy Tribe?
0: Yeah, Shy Tribe was like <laughs> it's a funny way to start. Shy Tribe started as something very different, I think than it is today, but sort of with the same idea that Jewish life should be way more accessible. And if that means it should be a website, which really works in a pandemic, that's awesome. And we started out as just this idea between two people that matched on a dating app that weren't going to date, that never would have met in real life. And we thought, why aren't there Jewish events in Chicago that are leading to more people meeting in general? And there are, but they're not accessible. And it was Confusing to me after moving from Madison, which is like a very small, small, small little pond, why there wasn't a central calendar or organization doing something to bring together all the various things because there were over probably 80 organizations in Chicago alone and no one knows what they stand for and no one knows when their events are. So I started working with... My co-founder, Sam, who is since not he's our board president, but he is not as involved because he found someone at a shy tribe happy hour and now they're married. So you're welcome. And um, we all start things for different reasons. I think he started it because he wanted to find someone, which is great. And I started it because I didn't understand why there was such a gap. And now we are a pretty robust website and calendar that is hosting hundreds and actually thousands of events from different organizations that are now national because of the pandemic. So we put out holiday guides for you to find everything Rosh Hashanah and Passover and then Jewish food, Chicago and people of the week and different things like that because no one was doing it. So now we do it and we are growing on Instagram as like a pretty big Jewish media publication. Um, and yeah, Amanda wants me to say it's the best organization ever. But I do think it's a great organization that it's filling a gap. And I think a lot of different cities could take this model of like grassroots efforts to make something and change in your city because it's not so hard to organize, especially using the internet. And I think people know that now more than they ever did in the last seven months. So, Shy Tribe.
1: Gabe, quick question. I'm a little confused by this week's portion. What's it about?
2: It's a really good question. This week's Torah portion is Chayei Sarah, which literally means life or lives of Sarah. That's not what this Torah portion is about. What? Okay, so here's your rundown. Sarah dies at 127 years old in Hebron in the land of Canaan. Her husband, Abraham, mourns and goes shopping for a burial plot. Word has gotten out in the area that Abraham has a special relationship with God, so they want to give him the land for free, but he insists on paying for it. Upon buying the cave of Machpelah, he buries Sarah there. Then Abraham remembers his son, you know, the favorite one, whom he loves, whom he almost killed, and decides it's time to go find a wife for him. So he sends his best servant, Eliezer, to go find a nice Jewish girl, okay, not Jewish, but they do keep it in the family, for Isaac, So Eliezer saddles up his camels, which may or may not be historically accurate, and sets out to find someone. He goes to the city of Nahor and has the camels sit by the well as the women come for water. He devises a totally logical test in which the woman who gives him and his camels water is to be the wife of Isaac. Lo and behold, Rivka, or Rebecca, shows up and does just that. She's passed the test. So Eliezer goes to Rivka's father Bethuel, Abraham's nephew, and asks permission to take her back to Isaac. Bethuel and Rivka's brother, Laban, he'll be important later, agree. Mazaltov. So Isaac is doing something out in the field when he sees camels approaching. It's Rivka, and when she sees Isaac, she may or may not fall off her camel. They're married, and they love each other very much. Abraham has some more kids, through yet another wife, but he leaves all of his stuff to Isaac. Abraham dies at 175 years old and is buried alongside Sarah in the cave of Machpelah. Also, just in case you forgot about him, Ishmael is still important. He has 12 sons who become chiefs of 12 tribes, which may sound familiar, and dies at 137 years old. And that's the totally not appropriately named
0: parasha, Chayei Sarah.
1: Well done. Rebecca, how would you rate that uh, Parsha rundown?
0: I think it was really good. You did a great job, But I think you didn't mention the part where Rebecca had to cover her face with a veil for some reason, because she saw, I don't know, someone that was supposed to be her master, but like, whatever, it's fine.
2: We do need to cut out details from time to time. That was unintentional, but thank you for pointing it out.
1: Rebecca, we're really happy to have you here to talk to us a little bit about Gen Z engagement, millennial engagement, and looking at Judaism through a totally different lens. One of the questions that I am curious about, um, and that I have for you is what is the insight or belief that is driving your work and your passion for the work that you're doing?
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think that from a pretty young age, I wanted to be a Jewish professional, which, like, isn't really a term most people understand. And they say, like, oh, are you a professional Jew? But I realize that most people on this particular podcast do understand. But I didn't want to be a rabbi, and I didn't want to be a cantor, even though I did do Jewish a cappella. And I've been told, why didn't you want to be a cantor? It's hard. And you to school for, like, four years. I'm not doing that. Um, so I think that I was really dedicated to being a Jewish professional because of camp, and that environment, and you can't really get that in private school, and I did go to private school, but camp was really, like, foundational, and it's very stereotypical to say that, but it was true. I think the differences for me is that I really liked being a camp counselor more than ever, like, being a camper, and then I like continuing to be a camp counselor in different veins of what I do so when it came to working at Hillel which was my first job out of college which is how I met Amanda and Carly um it was basically like being a camp counselor especially when you're only 23 years old and you're on your same college campus you're just a camp counselor and just a little bit you know more nuanced and you see your campers on the street without coats on when it's 40 degrees and you're like Eliza put on a coat it's fine um because you live by them Um, so I was really dedicated to doing something where I could continue to be a mentor or fulfill this role of being whatever being Jewish means to you and making that accessible. And I did that with engagement on campus. And then I started working in a social media landscape and I did a lot of like, how do we take what an organization about Jewish mindfulness is doing, for instance, and make that more accessible both to like the Boomer audience, which they were only getting, and maybe a younger audience that they care about different things. They want Instagram stories. They care about polls. And if you say that to your supervisor, that's like a grandma, but she's awesome. Um, She's like, I don't know what that means, but I like it and it's pretty. So it's finding this modernity meets Jewish practice and how to make that way more interesting. So I think that I really like I really like connecting with people and I recognize that that now is on the internet. And if you're going to be good at Jewish connectivity and Jewish engagement, you have to also be good at Jewish social media. So I think my passion really comes from like wanting to feel how I felt as a counselor. And I feel that way as a Hebrew school teacher. Um, But now how do I do it in practice to scale it, to reach thousands literally or hundreds of thousands potentially because the internet is so massive and the capacity is, um, really innumerable. So I, yeah, I'd say I'm passionate to be a Jewish professional, but it all started at camp.
2: I'm wondering if you can relate some of those values, not only to your experience, but uh, back to the text, um, whether it's, you know, the corpus of Jewish text more broadly or uh, our Torah portion this week. Sarah.
0: So how might this Torah portion match up with some of the values that I think inspire me as a Jewish professional and as an entrepreneur, because really when you're running an organization, you're sort of doing everything from scratch. Um, Sarah, I think, first of all, I connect with the character Rebecca cause my name is Rebecca. Um, and my Hebrew name is Rivka and it's spelled R E B C C A in English, but it's spelled the same in Hebrew, no matter how they translate it. So it's my name. And I always thought she was an interesting mother. And what I didn't really know is, this aspect of her consenting or what they call consent. I'd call it light consent, but her consenting to go and marry Isaac and like decide to leave her family for whatever, because she was really nice and fed some guys camels. So I always knew just the first part is that like, Oh, you know, something we can learn from this tour portion is you should be giving and you should, you know, go beyond yourself, which I think as a Jewish professional, we do all the time and which is why You know, when you from working at Hillel, working wherever, you're really you're working out of the clock. There's no nine to five, which is really crazy for people to understand. Um, And I guess I would also say that, you know what? Okay, here is here's something pretty literal that I took from the text is that it depends how you want to translate it. But like they keep referring to Rifka as a Na'al, like youth. And some people like translate that as damsel, but she wasn't like a damsel in distress. She was just very young. And from a very young age, she decided like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this crazy thing. And like, that's like, there is some aspect of her deciding and there being a lot of doubt. And I think what you're an entrepreneur, when you do anything and you're young, which I am, um, Or I'm young to be an entrepreneur, I'm young to be an executive director, and people like to tell you that, and they like to be a little ageist, so I think it's important to remember that, like, that's a mistranslation. One, she's not a damsel, she's just maybe a teenager, nah rah, and that you, it doesn't really matter your age, it matters your level of experience and your dedication when it comes to making something a reality, whether that's, I guess, leaving your father's house, which... I did at age 18, so probably a little a few years after Rebecca, according to this story. Um, But I do relate a lot with being in a place of discomfort to find greater good and giving and being generous and maybe too giving sometimes so you don't end up having to go to a foreign land.
1: So when you're dealing with this kind of in a digital space, which is what we're looking at now during the pandemic, how do you find the youth market coming out in in droves? How do you find their passion, their energy coping with entrepreneurship in a digital age, especially when there's kind of no other option at the moment?
0: Yeah, I think it's a little different because we were already in the digital space. And the biggest difference was that we had the mantra that we had was that Jewish life online, we can translate to in-person experience. But it started online. So with that mindset, it's very different than Jewish organizations that obviously everything starts a person and they want you to follow them on Facebook. So it's it's the opposite. So for us, we were already first and foremost online. So during the pandemic, we sort of had to go back and think, okay, what does it mean to be an online organization that's hosting online events and or who are we profiling? What are they doing? Are we profiling healthcare professionals? Are we profiling different new Jewish startups or Jewish people making moves? Because like, this is a hard time to do that. Um, And so it was sort of just like a shift to be completely in the virtual space. And I would say like the youth, as you will, the twenties, thirties, and even the teens, they're already coming out in droves before the pandemic. They're on their their screens all the time. Like we're on the screens all the time. And we already were. So the differences is that we just needed to be a little bit more strategic about what content we were putting out there because people are fatigued from it. And like, you can only get so many guides for a Seder and stuff like that. You can only see so many parodies for Hanukkah. Like what do people really need right now? And it has changed what they needed online in the digital space in 2019 is completely different. Um, And in terms of like programs, we've done happy hours online. It's crazy you you know you have like 80 people on a call and like eight different breakout rooms with different themes and they're just popping back to the lobby and you redirect them. It's not the same as being in a bar, but it's sort of the closest we can get right now. Um, and that's really, I think that's really unique. So like, I think that the next generation is really going to be shifted by this experience because like when I think about like a wedding, I'm like, why, why wouldn't there be a Zoom option in the future if I don't want to go to the wedding? Can I just Zoom in and see it? Like, shouldn't that be now a staple? And I wonder what kind of things like that are going to be part of Jewish life. Are we always going to option to do streaming services for those people that don't want to attend but want to participate? Is that just going to be a new practice? Um, and how can we adapt that?
2: So if you ran the zoo, how would, he, how would you continue? What practices would you continue from pandemic times into the future let's say you're in charge of like all of judaism in uh five years what is, what does that look like to you
0: so okay that's interesting because being you know the czar of judaism i don't know that that entirely exists as, as part of our practice right but like what do i hope that how about like what do i hope that different jewish practices might adapt and take with them in the future i can start with what well, like i don't hope i don't ever want to go to another zoom shiva those are the worst they're so uncomfortable, especially when all you do is, like, hear drug stories about someone and then their mom's on the Zoom call and they're like, wait, what does that mean? And it's like, why Why would you do that in a Zoom call? And also Zoom brisses. I think we could do without those. But I think that there's something really interesting about live streams. And some of, like, the Holocaust Museum has done a very good job in Skokie of doing a lot of live streams to combat the fact that They can't have the same kind of viewership in their museum, but they want their displays to get showtime. And I think that works really well. Um, I also think that there is now a new virtual space for, like, comedy and performance arts that sort of didn't exist at all, Um, whether that means streaming a really high quality service like or beautiful song session that people are now kind of putting on in the background, that never really existed as a widespread thing. That was a very much only the people on this call would do that for fun. Now many people might tune in just to hear just for nostalgia or to feel something. So I think that that's a shift that's really cool that hopefully if we continue to make these things available, be it song, be it literal services or... Some people like speakers, speakers they would never see in a million years that now they're being able to see on Zoom. That, I think, has a lot of merit. I remember we used to do programs where we would Zoom in the speaker, but now what if it's like some people get to pay more to be in there and then some people pay way less just to be on the Zoom call? There is something to be said about that, and that's a really cool experience for both sides of that. So there is a lot, I think, we can take and change. Um, And the biggest takeaway is that people need to be very updated on technology, which is difficult for the older generation. And many of those are the ones that are running Jewish organizations, running synagogue infrastructure, and they are not the ones that fully understand the tech component and why TikTok might matter one day. And why they should know that there's anti-Semitism on TikTok and how that might be a really good conversation to have with an 11 or 12 year old when they're studying for their bar bat mitzvah, rather than just like, what's this portion? Or like, oh, you like baseball? But like, oh, did you see this thing about Anne Frank on TikTok? How did it make you feel? Yeah, Gen Z. I'm really plugged in. It's too much.
1: I find it funny because uh, Gabe is is at the cusp of, of Gen Z. He is at the cusp between millennial and Gen Z, from what I understand. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Depending on who you ask. So am I. How old are you? I'm 24.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're you technically a millennial. You're technically, but you're right at the end. You're my sister's age. Technically a millennial.
2: Right. So I'm, I relate more to millennials. I, I understand the words you're saying and also
0: I don't relate to the TikTok thing. I don't get it. But like, do you know what Instagram reels are? Yeah, I know what it is. Well, there you go. Right. Like how many Jewish professionals have no idea what that is and have Instagram accounts? Like little things like that.
2: Yeah, fair point. Fair point.
0: You're just plugged in, Gabe. You don't even realize it.
2: Well, part of it's my little brother. So shout out to John and also Ben. But John is the one who like I see more often. So
0: there you
1: go. I think that it's an interesting take though, right? It, on this podcast alone, you have a, a wide range of ages. Um, Gabe comes in at 24, I come in at 34. Um, and, and there's a little bit of a difference in the way that we approach relational engagement um, and and kind of Jewish interaction. But I think that mostly both of us prefer to be in person when we can be, right? Like there, there's something about face-to-face interaction um, that, that is meaningful. And so one of the things that I'm fascinated by is that in this portion, right, Rebecca falls for Isaac from afar, like face to face, sure, but like more like camel from like a mile away, you know, literally falls for him. And so I'm curious what that looks like in today's day and age and, and how that works through something like shy tribe and how that works, um, in terms of the engagement that you're talking about and that you're embracing so well.
0: Well, I guess I have a question for you, Rabbi, about that translation, because does she really fall from the horse or does she like go up higher on the horse? And she's just like, oh, my God, is that the guy I'm supposed to marry in the field over there?
2: It's it's a good question. The Hebrew is Vatipol Me'al Hagamal, which which means she fell off her camel,
0: but she didn't get back on the camel. So did she really fall off the camel? I guess that's like my interpretation. I see her just like like I don't. I, it does say that it's interesting. Like I didn't take it to be she literally fell. You know, maybe she was like shocked or scared. But okay. Anyway, sorry, Amanda.
1: Go. You're fine. Um, I think that the question on the table is what does it mean to create relationships from a distance.
0: That's a good way to frame what's happening in this line, though. That's funny. Yeah. Um, I remember that. One person I worked with one time, she said that on her resume, one of the reasons she got the current role she was in was because she wrote as a special skill, she's the ability to develop remote relationships. And at the time, which wasn't even that long ago, I was like, that's an absurd statement, but okay. Because I I had been on Zoom calls and Google meets with people across the world for like different things. And when you're plugged into the Jewish world, you're talking to Israel or London or what have you. And I was like, that doesn't feel like that is a skill, but it is actually a skill. It turns out it's a great skill. Um and I just also had it, so I didn't recognize it as something that was a learned skill, but it's very important, even before the pandemic, to be able to not only create relationships, but sustain them, whether that be like, oh, your college friends or your camp friends or someone that moves away. And it has been made far easier with Facebook and FaceTime and WhatsApp and all of the things now. Like it's incredibly easier. So I think we have to take the fact that it is easy to stay connected and maybe sometimes it's so easy that it's overwhelming, but in a time like this pandemic where we are sort of more both disconnected and more connected than ever, how do you find like a middle ground by maintaining a sense of community from afar and like is that actually even possible? And for some people it might not be, which is really sad and true though. For some Jewish people in the community it's not possible. Some people can't use virtual life in the same way or that's not accessible to them or they just don't get anything out of it. And that's okay too. Um, So we're not even necessarily catering to everyone when we're thinking about everything being virtual. And that makes, that's difficult that like some people really do do Shabbat alone, but there are alternatives. And one alternative, for instance, is like, Having a Zoom call on Shabbat, which I've been a part of for the last seven months, which is so crazy. It's the same people for seven months every single week on a Zoom call. But it is a sense of community after a certain point. And we sort of need to take that practice and remember that even though it's super awkward, if you have a very good facilitator who, quote, is good at developing remote relationships from afar, um, maybe like Rebecca was on the camel, you know, or she was terrified. Um I think that we should use that practice moving forward and make sure that we don't forget you can create community even if you've never met, right? People get married and they've never met. Those aren't smart people, but we can be smart about our technology and how we use it in Judaism. It was a 90-day fiancé reference. I'm sorry.
1: Rebecca, I think that you really nailed it when you said that this podcast is spanning generations. We're, we're coming at it from a lot of different perspectives. And even for us in hosting this podcast, we're coming at it from geographic diversity, which is super fun within the States, right? You have me, I'm in Brooklyn. You have Edan, who chose to live on the opposite side of the city. You have Gabe, who's outside of Boston. And you have you know our two lovely guests on the podcast today who are living in the great state of Illinois. I think that it's an incredible opportunity for us to show that that everyone does Jew in their own way, and that's okay, and that Judaism doesn't have to look like one thing in particular. And so I'm curious how Shy Tribe is continuously making that happen, how you're revitalizing, rewriting what Judaism can look like in this day and age, and especially in the city of Chicago.
0: So because I don't think we fit into a traditional... Umbrella of Jewish life, not reform, not conservative, not humanist, or whatever you want to say. We're not orthodox, we're not kosher, we're not not kosher, we're none of the above, and we're not cultural. We're not, we don't take a clear stance on Israel. We stay away from Israel politics because I know that's divisive in my generation. So, with that in mind, our sort of redefinition of how Judaism can look is being, I mean, this is another organization's motto, but it's like making the tent wider. But that's true. I don't know whose it is. Give them credit. But it is. We're trying to widen the tent. But we're also by doing that in a virtual sense, we're actually filling a gap. We're creating a space and a platform. And I think that that redefines Judaism by saying it's not necessarily one place of worship or one organization that you're affiliated with. It's the ability to pick and choose from a myriad of options. And it really depends on where you're living because no, not where Carly is, there's not a myriad of options. And if you made something like Shy Tribe, you've had like two things on the calendar and that's hard. And it's hard for people that might live in a smaller Jewish area. But if you live in a metropolitan Jewish area, Jewish life should be as easy as a click away. And that is how I would like to redefine Judaism.
2: We wanna give you a platform here basically just to spread your message. Uh, So if you had one message to share with our plurality of listeners, what would your call to action be? What are you hoping your listeners will do after hearing this episode?
0: I think a call to action from a story like Shy Tribe, and if people want to learn more, they definitely can, shytribe.org, is that in... The future, the internet really, and dating apps and all of these things and apps and things being automated and that being a part of everyday normal life is the reality. And so Judaism sort of needs to take hold of that as well. And whether you're an entrepreneur or you're part of something that's already completely established, there's no reason not to be more accessible. And that could mean putting your phone number online. These are little things, but making yourself someone or a body of people that can be approached or can be understood and found out more about because people want to understand what they're participating in a lot more than we give it credit for. If people could have like a Rotten Tomatoes for Jewish events, what the audience are saying, what the organization says, there would be a huge disparity. And we don't have that yet, but it's a great idea for my platform. So I guess I would say is people should be creative with identifying the gaps that they see and also acknowledge that there's a lot of space online to expand, even though it feels like everything's been created. There are not shy tribes in every city. So I'm looking at Austin and like Seattle and Los Angeles needs one. There are a lot of cities that are in need of centrality and connectivity.
1: Absolutely beautiful. We're going to take a break. Uh, When we come back, uh, we'll be ready for Midrashic Mixology.
0: Hey, Gabe, I know you do this segment every week, Midrashic Mixology, right? Well, does that work for someone like me who doesn't drink because of their Jewish stomach?
2: It's a great question. Recognizing the diversity of our audience, we make sure to have a non-alcoholic version of the cocktail every week. This week, the drink itself is non-alcoholic, so we hope everyone will try it out and enjoy it. So, in honor of Chay our Midrashic Mixology cocktail this week is Rivka's Well Wishes. This simple drink is as delicious as it is refreshing, sure to satisfy Eliezer and the camels and maybe even land you a patriarch. Muddle together four to five slices of cucumber and shake with one and a half ounces of club soda, one ounce of fresh lime juice for that zesty kick to knock you off your camel, and one ounce of simple syrup. Strain over crushed ice and garnish with a mint sprig and a cucumber slice. A toast to the happy couple, L'chaim.
0: That sounds like a very summer drink and it's definitely winter in Chicago, but like I would drink that in the summer. It has my name in it.
2: Nice. It's, you know what, it's, it's winter here too in Boston. Um, and I don't know, sometimes you need to taste a taste of summer in the winter.
0: A zesty mint. L'chaim. L'chaim.
1: I'm really thrilled to introduce one of my best friends from my Hillel D. It's Carly Frimkin Burak who is currently enjoying her 11th year as the assistant director at Illini Hillel, the first Hillel ever created. What, what? Carly was born and raised in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, She has a BA in Judaic Studies from the University of Cincinnati and an MA in Comparative Religion from Western Michigan University. While studying for her degrees, Carly studied abroad in Israel at Tel Aviv University, Japan, and Egypt. She enjoys traveling, you think meeting new people, hanging out with friends, reading and music, especially classic rock. And for those that don't know, the Beatles. She loves meeting Jewish students and working with them throughout their own Jewish experience. And as such, I thought she would be an excellent match for Rebecca Schwab today and talking about what it is to, you know, create vibrant Jewish life in the great state of Illinois. And so with that, Carly, I bring you Rebecca Schwab. Rebecca, I bring you Carly. Enjoy your conversation.
0: Do you know she used to be my mentor, right? (laughs) Like we like had calls every other week. We did. We've met.
3: We've met a a couple of times. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you, Amanda, for that wonderful intro. Um, Rebecca, it's great to talk to you. So a couple of questions for you. Uh, First off, you're talking a lot about the difference between what millennials really are viewing as Judaism and their own Judaism versus maybe what the older generation views as Judaism or how they want to connect to Judaism. So really, what are some of the Jewish values that you see millennials really thriving on? Um, It can be during the pandemic, before the pandemic, any of that time, but what are kind of these these connective points that you see that uh, the millennial generation is really connecting to Judaism through?
0: Yeah, I think that during the pandemic, it's been probably different, but maybe the most revealing, right? Like, what do people actually care about? And I mean, I literally have the analytics on my website to see where people click. And so like during the high holidays, for instance, the most viewed event was socially distanced shofar blowing. So it turns out that that does matter to people, that they really, that that's something that that aspect of Jewish life, it mattered to them. And I had no idea until I saw it literally in front of us. And it was very interesting. Um, I also think during Passover was a really interesting telling point because that was kind of the beginning of the pandemic. Um, We put out a lot of resources about seder options and things like that and where to buy and everything but it was overwhelming how many people were clearly doing their own seder for the first time and young and they because we were scared to go to our parents we like didn't know what we could do yet and so that was really interesting and I and I and I had no idea like even I did my own seder with my sister and I would never have like those are not things that matter to me is cooking my sister likes to cook um I also think Jewish millennials and Gen Z are very connected through Jewish food. They love Jewish food. And and that's not even an overstatement. Like the Facebook account Jewlish is doing something right where they're combining, you know, peppy, cool, short videos where you're like, oh, maybe I can make that. I did make matbucha. It took two hours. You don't realize that in the one minute video. Okay. It does say 90 minutes, but you're like, that's fine. Um, so I think things like that really do resonate with this group of people and they're going to care moving forward about some of these religious staples and also about how they can sort of DIY it for themselves, um, which is a really big shift. We used to be a synagogue based religion and now it's sort of like, how does that reflect your own personal values and how, what are you going to do about it? And the answers are very diverse.
3: What is uh, one of your favorite things you've done with shy tribe? It doesn't have to be the favorite, but one of your favorite things.
0: Okay. One of my favorite things that I've done that everyone, you can include this link in your podcast. So I like to think of myself as a younger Joan Rivers, I think. And there aren't, you know, people don't press coverage Jewish events. It's not a thing that makes sense to do, but it would have been funny. So last year there was a huge Jewish event and we've done this for two years, but now there won't be this event and it's called the big event aptly named because it is a big event and we decided to host a red carpet where we just went up to people and asked them what they were wearing if if it was on sale um throughout the night and we we put that online and we put it on instagram and we made a full video of it it's very funny and it was also hilarious and i had a lot of fun doing it i mean i was out of breath and like we were running around for three hours yes amanda remembers that it was online it was big um and I think that was the most fun because it sort of showed a new light to Shy tribe that we can be this comedic presence of also revealing what's actually happening in the city, both accessible and funny and relatable and like very, very not just like Jewish people talking about Jewish stuff, but like dressed up in tuxes running around saying, what are you wearing? And was it on sale? And finding the friend with the most expensive outfit that was most discounted. So... That was really fun and that's not really possible in the pandemic times. I would have loved to do that for lots of other events too to show both on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube what Jewish events actually look like instead of just hearing about it or seeing pictures but to see it in real time makes people want to go.
3: That sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) All right, I have a couple more for you. Um, So as we all know, I work for Hillel um, and there's a lot of even in the 11 years that I've worked here, we've had a lot of changes and, you know, try to try to be um, hip with the times. Uh, There's my old age coming out. (laughs) So what advice do you have for um, Hillel's for synagogues for teen organizations, anything like that? to really connect with students virtually?
0: Yeah, so I guess I would say is that the old model of coffee dates, I know that people are adapting that virtually, but that is kind of weird to do a one-on-one coffee date. And I I think that there would be a lot of success in creating like core communities virtually, but like with people with shared interests and with the understanding that a Zoom call with over 10 people gets pretty excessive. So understanding that if you wanna create core communities, both if you're a synagogue and you have a youth board, or if you are a Hillel and you want to create special interest groups based on different things, or a book club, or a women's group, or an Israel group, or what have you, that it's very different in the virtual setting. And that you might even wanna set your expectations to be a lot more realistic and understanding that if you have twelve people meeting almost every week, that is more of a success than maybe a one off program where you had sixty people that might of not completely been in and it depends on your metrics of success, right? But I would challenge synagogues and Hillels to think how the metrics of success will differ when you're creating a virtual community and that the capacity that we're we're usually numbers based and I know that. Oh, you know, like you want to get this many likes or this many engagements, this many interactions, it's different. And we need to acknowledge it as such and measure it differently and aim for our successes to be in the quality of community we're providing and less about that there were 100 people on this Shabbat Zoom call.
3: And then one final question uh, from my awesome friend. What is your favorite Jewish uh, phrase, word? It could be in Hebrew. It could be Yiddish. It could be anything. What's your favorite Jewish word or phrase?
0: I feel like I have a favorite Yiddish phrase and a favorite Hebrew phrase, and they're different. Go for it. So my favorite Yiddish phrase is kinahora because I think that people should say it more and we also say it, we use it wrong. So kinahora is like when you have said something that you hope to be true, but like in the same breath, you're like, oh my God, now that I said it, I'm gonna jinx it. So you say kinahora, like, oh, you and your boyfriend, but they're not dating it and you're like kinahora right away so that hopefully it'll be official one day. Um, I've used that in practice, I try to. And I think my favorite Hebrew phrase, um, it's harder when you speak Hebrew. Like, what's my favorite Hebrew phrase? Um, I think my favorite Hebrew slang is, baseret, which is like, you're living in a movie and you can say it to people who are being ridiculous. And I feel like people would say that to me a lot, or you're like being dramatic or like, that's not real. But I think that we've all like for the last seven months, we've like been living in a movie and it was a horror movie, but living in a movie. So I think it's pretty applicable to uh, this current phase. Thanks. Thank you.
1: With that, we've reached thank yous and closing cues. Rebecca, Carly, Gabe, Idan, quick question. What is one wish that you want to manifest into reality? In Sara, we had Damask Eliezer really manifest things out um, in order for something awesome to happen and come to him. And so today, what is it that we are really wishing for, really putting out into the universe that we hope is going to come back to us tenfold? Rebecca, we're going to start with you.
0: I really hope that one thing I hope to manifest into reality would be, I mean, it is a hard question, but I would say like greater organization when it comes to prioritizing the things that matter and it's hard because there's so many things being popped at us right now or like in our inbox and like with the election and also with just like trying to stay connected in a world that feels so disengaged so i would say i hope that i can continue to and i hope that everyone can continue to kind of sort through what matters and what doesn't during this time and really focus on what does matter so organization and prioritization it's doable.
1: Thank you. Gabe?
2: One of my favorite lines of Torah, we didn't get to talk about it today, even though it's in this Torah portion, but my one of my favorite uh, verses is Genesis chapter 24, uh, verse 63. And the reason I love it so much is that it contains this this phrase, Vayetzei Yitzchak lasuach basadeh lifanot arev. And, uh, lasuach, it's the only time that word appears in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't show up anywhere else. Um, And so there are a lot of different interpretations that uh, our tradition has come up with to say, what is this thing that uh, Isaac is doing in the field before evening? Um, And most of them relate to meditating or praying. um, And Uh, just at that moment when he's meditating or praying or dreaming or thinking, uh, he looks up and he sees the camels coming, um, which is just such a funny scene to me. Um, so for me, I, my, my wish is to have those moments of meditation, of prayer, um, but also those moments of looking up and realizing something on the horizon.
3: Carly? So, as I was thinking about what do I want out, um, what is my hope, what do I want to put out in the universe, um, I looked down and I have a um, sticker on my computer that says "Bless this Balagon. and um, really that's how I feel right now. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of personal things that are happening um, in my life right now, and it's kind of a Balagon. <laughs> um, just in general, not just even, you know, with COVID and then with other things, just everything in the world right now is a Balagan. Um, and I just really want to bless it and kind of say, it'll be okay. I know that the Balagan will always be there, but we'll, we'll get past it. I'll get past any challenges I have in my life. Um, and so I just really want to put it out there to, to Bless ourselves to remember that it's okay that there's a Balagan happening, um, personally, professionally, in the world, um, but it's okay. It's okay. I appreciate
1: that. Uh, bless this Balagan. It reminds me, uh, my, my mentor, Rabbi David Wolfon, has a wonderful habit of when he is speaking to mourners of saying that he hopes, uh, may, may their positive memories of the person be for a blessing. Because not all of our memories are always a, a positive moment. And so I think the thing I'm manifesting right now is through everything that we're going through, through, through everything that's happened in the last year, in the last seven months, um, that may our positive memories of that time, of, of this moment, be for a blessing. And may we grow a little bit from the brokenness that we've experienced. Because um, you can't grow without some breakage. E. Don. Well, I think that um, for me... I I guess it's sort of this <laughs> internal struggle I have of being optimistic and also pessimistic at the same time where I find it extremely unlikely mm. that everybody is going to work together to fight their way through this pandemic. I also really really wish for that to to come to fruition and hopefully um us doing this podcast could be a small part of that for maybe the, the Jewish community. Um but yeah, I, I hope that we can all start, you know, really working together and um, fight through this as
2: the human race as a whole.
1: Thank you, Idan. Rebecca, if people want to continue the conversation, how can they best find or follow you?
0: Yeah, if people want to continue the conversation, they can learn more about Shy Tribe at www.shytribe.org, C-H-I-T-R-I-B-E. Or you can search on Facebook, Shy Tribe, or on Instagram, your Shy Tribe, because Shy Tribe was taken by Chihuahuas. So you can also email me at Rebecca at shytribe.org.
1: Fantastic. And with that, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? You are a stand-up comic after all.
0: No, I've like done stand up comedy and there is no stand up comedy right now because we're all like I've done Zoom comedy also, which was very weird. Mm -hmm. Um, What are my thoughts, concerns or jokes? Like, I just hope everyone voted in that in the next seven days, because I assume that's the election counting time. I've given it a full seven extra days that we'll know and that the country will at least feel a little different than it felt for the last four years. Um, And I'm concerned that it won't.
1: All right beautiful thank you so much for joining us today rebecca and carly
0: thank you for having me
1: and thank you always to my co-host gabe thank you and to our favorite producer edan Waldman.
2: yep
3: <laughs> love y'all
1: wow I really appreciated how Rebecca brought in some comedy, some thoughts on community engagement. And one of the things that I'm thinking about right now is, Gabe, do you agree that age gap might dictate how we look at relationship building?
2: To an extent, I, I think definitely. I think that uh, the way that uh, we process information is different from the way we that our parents process information. The way that we Uh, meet people, the way we interact with people is different from the way our parents did, certainly from the way that our grandparents did. Um, You know, I think about the common trope against millennials and uh, Gen Zers that uh, we're too stuck in our phones, that we're always on a screen and that we can't have face-to-face interaction with each other, when in reality, the way we stay connected with people is on our phones and through our screens. And so I I totally agree uh, that the way we communicate is is based largely upon our context and time and generation. Um, that said, I think when you look at a story, when you look at a text like the Torah that's ancient, you can see something familiar within it. You can see this idea of a man in a field looking out and seeing somebody coming and being excited. And you can see the woman sitting on her camel, seeing somebody in the distance and being so excited that she falls off of her camel. We've never had that experience, but we can understand it. There's something very human about it. And so while there is a generational divide in how we communicate, I don't think there's a generational divide in how we relate to one another.
1: I think that's an incredible insight. As we grow digitally into the space I'm curious what impact that's going to have on the Jewish community and what it looks like I think nowadays and we heard about this from Rabbi Nemeth um, and Rabbi Goodman that Judaism doesn't look like it used to it's changed it's evolved and we can no longer rely on what Judaism was or used to be and so one of the things I really appreciated about Carly and Rebecca was their take on the fact that engagement can come from anywhere, that it can come from starting in a virtual space and moving into a personal one, or you can flip it and start face to face and move on to a Facebook field, an Instagram post or a Twitter feed.
2: Definitely. One of the things I really appreciated about what uh, Rebecca Schwab talked about was that shy tribe is not just non-denominational, but really post-denominational, that there's this idea that Jewish connection can come from anywhere, as you said. I'm wondering on a personal level, uh, for the two of us being students at Hebrew Union College at the North American Reform Seminary, how we relate to that post-denominationalism. Because I do think there's something valuable about about denominationalism. I do think there's something valuable about uh, my identity as not just a Jew, but as a Reform Jew. Um, So I'm I'm curious about how we can take the openness of Rebecca's post-denominational thinking and employ it in our own lives without giving up that piece of our identity.
1: Sure. And I think that we do that on this podcast and also even, believe it or not, during this pandemic, it may seem like a joke, but in a lot of religious schools right now, teaching is occurring in actual open tense, right? We are teaching a lot of students at the moment in open tense outside. Even though, especially in New York, it's a little cold out there. I think that the more that we're able to widen the tent, the more that we're able to expand the definition of, quote, what Jewish, end quote, is or can be, um, the easier it's going to be to come closer to an understanding of what it is to build those communities, even across differences. And for that, we'll find out more next week. Sounds great. L'chaim, everyone.
2: L'chaim.
0: Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist, a podcast that's hard to say but great to listen to.